to Bloody Violent History, and this our section on some of the most important battles in history. The Prussian military theorist Karl von Clausewitz said that war is politics by other means, and in war, battles are fought, on land, on sea, and in the air. Many are inconclusive, some are a step towards eventual victory, and of course, the winner of the last battle is generally the victor. We are going to examine some iconic battles which have either brought a war to a close or have had such an important effect on the war that they have decisively changed its direction and outcome. A very few of these end up defining a conflict or even a nation. Today we're going to talk about the famous Battle of Waterloo, which took place on the 18th of June 1815, just south of Brussels. This was the finale, the culminating contest between Napoleon and his reconstituted French army after his escape from exile on Elba, and the British and the nations of the Seventh Alliance, most notably the Prussians. It was a vicious and bloody day with more than 20,000 casualties on the Alliance side and more than 40,000 on the French. To gain a true understanding of something as complex as a battle, a visit to the site is paramount. Today we're giving you the next best thing. I have with me an historian and expert on the Napoleonic period, who has taken many lecture tours to the Napoleonic battlefields, and especially Waterloo. Hugh MacDonald Buchanan, welcome to Bloody Violent History. Thank you very much. The premise of this series, this sub-series, is whether or not this particular battle we're going to discuss was the battle or a battle in the war. Um, Waterloo is a very famous uh, encounter in the Napoleonic Wars. But before the day of the battle, we, I'd like to just talk about what was happening up until that period in June uh, 1815. So could you give us a little snapshot of what's happened from Napoleon arriving on the scene in 1803 through to 1815? A uh, couple of sentences on that. Certainly. Well, when Napoleon makes himself uh, emperor, <clears throat> the whole tempo of the wars initiated by France changed from the wars of the French Revolution into the wars dominated by Napoleon's ambition. And eventually, this will lead him to carve out a vast uh, empire in Central Europe, um, at the fullest extent of which stretches from the Atlantic coast into the west right up to the borders of, of Russia in the east. He arguably reaches his apogee in the very, very early part of 1812. And the reason for that, he has now assembled a vast army of 600,000 uh, soldiers with which he's going to invade Russia and he looked as though he might succeed. This helps to bring uh, America into the war against Britain. You have the American War which goes from 1812 to 1814. He's able to command uh, huge alliances. You couldn't have a, a, an army that size without bringing troops in from his conquered dominions but it all goes horribly wrong. And we know that his Russian campaign is a disaster. And the story of the rest of 1812, 13 and 14 is of Napoleon suffering not just military defeats, uh, but a gradual, slow political collapse. He's no longer able to command um, the terror which gelled together his alliances internationally. And more than that, he's beginning to lose uh, political support in France. 
Finally, uh, the Allies invade France in 1814, so Wellington's army is approaching from the peninsula and reaches Toulouse, and the Russians, Austrians and Prussians are invading from the, from the north and the west, and Napoleon is forced to, to abdicate, and is sent to the island of Elba. Interestingly, this is an initiative made by Tsar Alexander, he managed to get to the negotiating table before the other uh, for, before the other peers. Saint Helena had indeed been mooted at that point, uh, but Tsar Alexander wanted him to go to uh, to Elba, and it was um, Napoleon was only there for a few months, no more than about eight months. And um, why did they just execute him? That's a really good question. I think the Prussians would have executed him. Uh, the problem for the Austrians is that he was still married to the Empress of Austria's uh, Emperor of Austria's uh, 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 daughter, and Tsar Alexander, in a strange sort of way, had this sort his hero worship of uh, of Napoleon, and didn't want him executed. And one of the reasons he wanted him to go to Elba is he thought, in a rather weird way, that Napoleon's mental and physical presence relatively close to Europe would help maintain the balance of power in, uh, in, in Europe. Uh, so he wasn't executed at that point and he was allowed to go and not only was he allowed to go, he's allowed to go on what they perceived to be relatively beneficial terms. So he's allowed to take 1,100 men of the Napoleon battle, uh, battalion of the old Imperial Guard. He's uh, allowed the title King of Elba um, he doesn't really have a jailer. Uh, so Neil Campbell has always been uh, wrongly uh, assessed by history as having been Britain's representative jailer actually on Elba. In fact, that wasn't the case. Napoleon uh, recommended his presence as, um, a, a, as a diplomatic conduit. But of course he gets bored. And not only does he get bored, but the French refuse to pay the monies that they promised him, so he's running out of cash. And I think something else happens, which is very important, is by the end of 1814, I think Napoleon is physically and mentally exhausted. So a few months in Elba, sorting things out, sorts himself out. And I think he, I think he heals. Uh, and I think he feels his old ambition returning. I think he's angry that he can't see his wife or his, uh, his child. And gradually he makes up his mind that he's going to return and try and instate a coup and reinstate himself as Emperor of France. And would it be the case that when he returns, his strategic idea is that if he defeats England, the finance falls away, he gains momentum, the coalition of allies collapses, and then he's able to basically dominate Europe. Is that... Well, and he's tried, it, he's tried it before with what is known as the continental system, whereby when he was at the peak of his powers uh, within Europe, one of the conditions of alliance with France is that other nations do not trade with Britain, which he refers to as the nation of shopkeepers. And it does, in fact, begin to have, have, have an effect... So in, 18, uh, in 1812, uh, the continental system has, 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 has bitten. And 1812, I mentioned a little bit earlier, is, is a really bad year for, uh, for Britain, with the Americans coming at the war, Napoleon looking supreme in, in Europe. So yes, I think that's always at the, uh, always at the back, of his, uh, back of his mind. But he's got a lot to do before he can even get there. Uh, he has to land in France and he has to instigate a coup 
Um, many of his previous supporters have gone over to the Bourbon, to Louis XVIII, including, I might say, and this is, this is a critical one, Alexandre Berthier, who's been his chief of staff for, you know, a decade, decade plus now. And his the great re- organiser. His great organiser. And I think this becomes critical to the uh, Waterloo campaign. And no doubt we're talking about it a little bit more. But one of Berthier's skills is the fact he can interpret orders that emanate from Napoleon in Sten gun fashion into some semblance of, uh, of understandable French or whatever language it has to be passed on in. In the absence of Berthier, that doesn't happen. Uh, Marshal Soult, who is appointed chief of staff, is a very brilliant manoeuvre of troops and has fought well under Napoleon. It is Soult, for example, who led the attack on the Pratzen Heights at, uh, at Austerlitz. But he doesn't have the same qualities that Berthier did, which is that, uh, that of a well-practised top-class uh, staff officer who knows uh, the little foibles of his, his boss and knows how to iron them out and make his boss's intentions clear to subordinate commanders. Good. Well, then let's come on to the commanders um, and their varying styles of executing warfare. So first of all, we've got Napoleon. As you said, he's ageing. I don't like to mention it, but he has piles, which seems to come up in every every discussion at this time. Uh, he's never faced the English before, has he? He's an artillery man and a good delegator who, as you said about Berthier, someone like Berthier can, can interpret his wishes, um, whereas I believe Wellington was not much of a delegator. And he's got these, these great you know, uh, generals under him, famous generals like, like Ney and Grouchy. Um, so, Napoleon. Napoleon's style has um, changed during the course of the Napoleonic Wars as the wars increasingly become wars of attrition, big battles that sometimes take two or three days uh, uh, in, um, in, in, in length. Um, a classical example of that is, of course, the Battle of Leipzig in 1813, which was a, a three-day battle. Um, Napoleon's problem is he's got to adapt to two things very high casualty rates over a number of years, not just in men, but in horses and, of course, in financial resources as well. But also the fact that his enemies are getting used to his 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 tactics. Um, obviously, he's developed this reputation as a brilliant battlefield commander. He's capable of winning big victories. So when the Allies, the Austrians, the Prussians and the Russians advance into Germany in 1813, their plan is not to commit themselves uh, to battle individually, which is what the Allies might have done in a former instance, and just wait for another one to come along and and, and help you out with numbers. If Napoleon attacked any one of them, they would either stop or retreat before before going on again. And this tactic becomes remarkably successful. This was so that they could all be gathered together as one big force. When the moment comes. Um, beforehand, uh, Napoleon used uh, the flexibility and the manoeuvrability of the French armies to, to great effect. He would like to pin an army in the front, say, and then envelop its um, uh, flanks, or, as he called it, a manoeuvre against the, the rear parts, i.e. cut off uh, their um, uh, lines of communication. And this he could do if he had high-quality troops uh, trained to manoeuvre 
well resourced in, um, in, in, in horsepower and also able to live off the fat of the land, which enable greater speed of movement. Comparing that to, say, the British, who always took um, uh, supply convoys uh, with them, and Wellington actually underwrote this system in, in, in the peninsula, uh, the French would always look to uh, find food where they could have it. They took minimum supplies with them, but they would campaign in spring and summer and autumn and raid local people's food supplies. Uh, more than that, once they won a battle, they would charge an enormous indemnity in cash which, with which they could then go and buy uh, further supplies. So the capability of um, Napoleon to use the flexibility, the manoeuvrability and the speed of movement that he'd done in former years is beginning to move away from him. And the other thing you mentioned was his communication uh, and that he was fortunate to have a man who understood him in the past and that this, because this comes up in Waterloo, communication is key in battle and Napoleon's way of communicating his orders down wasn't necessarily that clear. I think that's <clears throat> exactly right. I mean, France, traditionally, um, and in the wars of the French Revolution and in the Napoleonic Wars, had to have lots of armies because they were fighting lots of enemies on the continent. If you have lots of armies, you have to have uh, lots of uh, generals. So we're not just talking about uh, a single army under Napoleon's command, say. You're talking about about a series, and you're talking about delegation of command to people who you know, who can trust, who can do do a good job. Um, But within the context of his main battle army, uh, which he formed to strike at Wellington and Blücher uh, first uh, in, 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 in Belgium. He, his plan was to divide his army into, into three corps, that meant three corps commanders. And it was very, very important that they would uh, react according to the letter of his word so that manoeuvres, if they had to be changed at the last minute, and of course warfare is very, very fluid, uh, the staff system could see that that happened without, uh, without mishap. Uh, and it will go wrong. It'll go wrong at uh, Ligny, it'll go wrong at Quatre-Bras, it'll go wrong at Wavre, and it goes pretty wrong at Waterloo. Uh, and thereby, just in that quick overview, pointing out that there were four battles in this this campaign. Uh, you have two big battles uh, on the 16th at Ligny, which is Napoleon versus the Prussians. You have Catch Bras, which is Marshal Ney, leader of one of the corps, versus uh, Wellington's army, which is an allied army. And then you call Wavre on the 18th. You have uh, Marshal Grouchy with a detached force of 30,000 fighting the uh, Prussian rearguard at, at Thielmann. Under those circumstances, if Napoleon can't communicate swiftly uh, and uh, clearly to his immediate subordinate com- commanders, he's going to find it very difficult to muster his troops uh, in the place that he wants at the time that he wants. OK, well, then let's move across to Wellington and his way of doing battle. Um, he was a respected man. Napoleon was adored by his men, um, despite the fact that he killed great numbers of them, seemingly. But Wellington was respected, not adored. He demanded order and obedience. He had his infamous army. He wasn't keen, supposedly, on, on the cavalry, or he distrusted the cavalry. Uh, but he was good at things like intelligence. He had his exploring officers. He had a lot to live up to. 
Was he a better soldier than Napoleon gave him credit? Without a shadow of doubt. Uh, and I also think that at the back of my mind, um, Napoleon did give him quite a lot of credit. So this very famous speech at uh, breakfast on the morning of Waterloo, when if you've seen the film, you see Rod Steiger rattling the silver things with the kidneys and bacon inside, and it goes absolutely catatonic when they suggest caution. And Napoleon uh, rants at them and says, look, he's a sepoy general and you've all been beaten by him and that's why you're scared of him. But we have all the advantages. We'll use our enormous cannonade and our superiority in cavalry and we're going to, we're going to win, the, uh, the, win the day. And that's where the story about Napoleon um, uh, denigrating Wellington comes from. But he had, for some time now, been watching the progress of what had been happening in the, uh, in the Peninsula War um, in particular, I think it was quite important that on the very eve of Borodino, two things happen in Napoleon's camp. Uh, Napoleon, interestingly, has a hideous cold and, uh, and isn't operating at, uh, at top level. The first thing that arrives is a brand new portrait of his son, uh, the King of Rome, by David. And, you know, he opens it up and that makes him look very happy. The next thing that happens is a mud-spattered aide comes rushing in with the news of the enormous defeat at the Battle of Salamanca in July of that, uh, of, that, uh, of that year. And I think he knows uh, in his heart of hearts uh, that you know, Wellington is certainly a capable general. He was under different pressures at Waterloo. This isn't just a general-on-general general battle. He, he was under pressure to get this job done over quickly. And I think what he does put into his calculations... Uh, the fact that Wellington's army is a very, very mixed um, bag altogether. You know, Napoleon has assembled uh, an army of, which contains quite a lot of his old veterans, uh, his old cavalry, uh, their experienced infantry regiments. He's managed to get them supplied. It's, it's not a bad operating unit, apart from the fact it's not matched tight. And you refer to that when you refer to the bad, um, bad staff work. What he's looking at is Wellington's army. Only 30% of that is British, incidentally. The rest combines uh, Belgians, many of whom have actually fought for him in the past, uh, Dutch, who he doesn't necessarily rate, and then a mixture of Germans, uh, the King's German Legion, Hanoverians, Nassauers, uh, uh, Brunswickers. And he thinks that this army is going to crack under a, under a massive blow. So I don't think he's so much underestimating uh, Wellington as such, but I think he's taking a, a, a view that this is an army that isn't, isn't matched tight and isn't up to uh, the, possibly the quality of his own army. And Wellington's peninsula troops, a lot of them are in America. Yes, um, and many of them have been sent over to participate in the War of 1812-14, culminating, sadly, in the Battle of New Orleans, <clears throat> which is fought actually just after the, the peace treaty's been, uh, been agreed. But he does assemble, or is allowed to assemble, because don't forget Wellington isn't at the command of what troops he gets. He has to appeal to horse guards and the, um, and, and the Duke of York, who is the, essentially the head of the army, the commander-in-chief. But he has assembled around him a number of experienced officers with whom he's worked from battalion um, commander level uh, upwards. For example... Colonel James MacDonald, who closed the gates of Hougoumont, is a peninsula uh, veteran. He hasn't got the uh, chief of staff that he requires, George Murray, because he was sent to America, but he has Sir William Delancey, who knows, who he knows indeed from India. 
and he knew even even before that. Some of the brigade and divisional commanders are really up to scratch, and, and Picton, one of the two British major generals to lose their lives at Waterloo, is a very, very valuable uh, veteran and a fighting divisional commander of immense, uh, of immense ability. And indeed, he and Wellington together conduct the Battle of Catch Bra on the 16th before Waterloo in an amazingly... Uh, tactically competent, uh, competent way. So he does have, you know, D- despite the fact that Picton is wounded. Uh, Picton is wounded. Absolutely, he has broken ribs. And when they examine his body after after Waterloo, it is felt that the smashed ribs and the contusion and the bruising would have been a very very serious wound in indeed. So it's absolutely amazing that Picton is able to take any part in in Waterloo whatsoever. Where he was killed. Where he was killed. Um, you've also got the Prince of Orange, Slender Billy, on Wellington's staff. Ah, yes. Well, Wellington um, has a political coup. He is appointed essentially by agreement of all the powers at the Congress of Vienna. And it is acknowledged that a large part of his army is going to be uh, Dutch-Belgian. Now, the, 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 uh, the king uh, wants his son to be in command of all the Dutch-Belgian troops. But Wellington puts his foot down. And the row works in Wellington's favour, so he's made field marshal and command of all the Dutch-Belgian troops that are part of the Allied army. He had previously constructed his army based uh, on a core system, which was now becoming the way of doing things in the late Napoleonic uh, uh, wars, uh, and he collapses that because he doesn't want the Prince of Orange being, uh, although he's the field marshal, he doesn't want him to have the level of a corps commander, which would place him in charge of, say, 30,000 troops, Uh, but he reduces him to the level of divisional commander, where he may be in charge of 7,000 troops or so and still give him him a a command. And it also means that it centralises Wellington's own command position because all divisional commanders will now be looking up to him as the field marshal, as though he's one great big centralised corps commander. Is that one of the reasons why he moves around the battlefield so much, or was that just his style anyway? That was his style anyway. Um, it was his habit to go from uh, crisis point to crisis point. And not only that, he would also um, micromanage those crisis points if necessary. For example, at the uh, uh, Battle of Catch Bra, he actually takes over command of the 9th Second of the Gordon, Gordon Highlanders during the massed French uh, cavalry attacks and directs their fire on a volley-by-volley basis, as if he is a battalion uh, commander. And, uh, and very effective at it, he is, he, he is as well. You know, it's not just... Um, to, to understand Wellington's style of command, it isn't just the fact that he's good at um, strategy and, and, and operations, but his style of battle command is very involved, whereas Napoleon's style of battle command is much less involved. He's very, very happy to uh, delegate to trusted generals and then wait and see what happens as to where he's going to throw the main mass of his reserves. Uh, Do you think there were risks to Wellington doing this, being like this, or was that an inspiration? I mean, it sounds risky to me that he should be directing the battle and he's he's fighting a, a, a battalion. It's a very interesting question. I think the Napoleonic Wars and I think the wars of later on in that century, um, but not so much when you get the Franco-Prussian War, still have this element of the leader having to be 
seen and seen to be in um, seen to be in command. Um, from Wellington's point of view, however, it's a uh, it's a little bit it's a little bit more than that. It's just making sure that things go right. You know, he can't afford uh, a mistake. So, but just to ca- carry on with this point a little bit longer, um, if he was in the middle of a, of a micro engagement and something else happened on the battlefield somewhere else, was his setup well enough organised that that could be dealt with by I don't know Picton or someone else? Was that the thing he could rely on others? Yes, uh, and at Waterloo, it um, it works because when the opening grand attack. Um, spearheaded by Dernon's corps of some 17,000 infantry, um, goes in <clears throat> against Wellington's centre and his um, and the eastern edge of his, his line. Um, Wellington isn't there. He's actually behind Hougoumont, which he sees as the main uh, sensitive part of his, his, his defences. Uh, and so the two commanders on the spot individually make uh, key decisions without him being there. The first is the one by um, Major General Sir Thomas Picton to attack the French columns once they reached or pretty much reached the summit of the ridge. Uh, and the second is the decision by Uxbridge uh, to launch a heavy cavalry attack comprising the Union Brigade and, and the Household Brigade. Good. OK, well, we're going to get into that a bit later. So one more character commander that we should talk about is Marshal Blucher the Prussian well he's a uh, he's a splendid uh, soldier he is I think a soldier soldier um, he's a sort of man who never knew when he was uh, beat detested the French um, he would certainly have had Welling, uh, Napoleon shot either in 1814 or, or 1815 but he was he was a doughty courageous um, commander. He's 72 years of age. He's approaching his 73rd uh, birthday. At the Battle of Ligny, uh, leading a cavalry charge uh, very late in the evening to try and give his troops space to get off the battlefield. His horse is shot from under him and rolls on him, and Blucher is very, very badly hurt. Uh, he spends a, a day recovering and then um, restores himself with a tonic composed of gin and garlic and plays an instrumental role in urging his troops westwards to join the battlefield at, at, at Waterloo. Very interesting to note that the Prussian army, which has been going through um, several years of reform now since their uh, defeats at uh, Jena and Auerstadt, <coughs> devised this central staff system whereby Neisenau, who's the chief of staff, has a very, very high uh, command role in organising and facilitating the, the, the movement of, of troops. Blücher is regarded by his own side as the inspirational uh, battlefield commander and uh, strategy will be decided by him and Neisner together. Um, in his absence, it is Neisner who makes the decision to retreat from uh, Ligny, not back eastwards towards Germany, but back towards Brussels, thereby retreating parallel to the line that Wellington will eventually take, which puts them, you know, in very, very close contact by the time the Battle of Waterloo comes. And this is the essence of the great German staff system uh, that is used in the in the First World War and uh, not well used by Hitler in the, in the Second World War. 
And so, uh, because some people say that that Neisner was um, not that pro the Brits and therefore didn't trust Wellington, but he actually did the he took the right decision and he kept in close contact. I think the acrimony stemmed from the deliberations and manoeuvrings during the uh, first uh, stage of the Congress of Vienna, when it came quite clear that the uh, British and the French and the Austrians were trying to build up their own alliance within the within the discussions to preserve some form of um, balance of power against the Prussians and the and 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 the Russians. And of course, a lot of these discussions had to happen in secret, and of course, it leaked out. And I think there was some element of Neisner being at least wary. But he's now facing a battlefield situation. And there is actually um, a key element of the relationship between the Prussians and, and Wellington, which is the personal relationship between Wellington and Blücher. Wellington happens to admire Blücher and understands what sort of general he is. You know, he knows that uh, he's, uh, he's an attack dog and he will just keep on, keep on going. Um, Wellington had studied uh, the campaign of 18, 1814 and, you know, he very much admired Napoleon's manoeuvres during that campaign, which back to his old, uh, old style, as it were. But equally, he admired what Blücher had, uh, had done in that campaign. And they met frequently and they liked one another. And they admired one another, and it was it was mutual. And so, when Blücher uh, says to, uh, uh, in response to Wellington's request that he send, if if Blücher sends one corps of men, let's say thirty thousand, um, to join him at Waterloo, he will stand at the position of Mont Saint Jean and fight it out, on the basis that uh, his army and one corps will um, at least hold up, if not defeat, defeat Napoleon. And Blücher says magnanimously. Uh, I will come with my my whole whole army, and during that um, difficult moment on the morning of the eighteenth, when he has to move his army across a couple of river valleys through woods, after torrential rain, you know, he's one of the refrains he comes out with. You won't have me break my word to the Duke of Wellington. You know, it's one of the phrases he uses to spur on his 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 troops. So perhaps some mistrust on behalf of Neisenau. But uh, Wellington and uh, Blucher understand they need to work together. And it is great tribute to Wellington that he, when he receives that note from Blucher, he says, right, that's good enough. Just before we do come on to the actual battle, I want to have a quick chat about some of the weapons that they're using at this time. So... Perhaps we could start with artillery. Artillery. There have been improvements in artillery since uh, over the previous I don't know, 50, years, 50 years or so. And the technology for making gun barrels in particular has improved. So rather than welding together bits of uh, metal to form, form a tube, uh, a bit of metal is now formed in one block and just drilled, just drilled out. This makes it, this makes it stronger. Um, artillery is used in uh, mass blocks and it can fire a different range of, 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 of projectiles. Um, it fires the equivalent of what we today would call, I don't know, birdshot, buckshot, 
cartridge shot or whatever it is, using canister grape shot, which is just a, a bag of uh, little bullets shot out at the end of the gun, which is quite short range, but it can knock down hundreds of, of, of soldiers. Round shot is also used as a, a personnel um, a killer. And the ideal way of using round shot is to use it like a skipping stone. So an ideal shot would bounce or graze the earth just in front of a body of enemy troops. And they will probably bounce two or three times if that body of troops is, say, formed in, in, in a column. And there are uh, a number of instances of this happening at uh, Waterloo. Um, the calibre, um, uh, that is the size of the shot, uh, ranges. So in Napoleon's army, you had small cannon, like three-pounders, which they would wheel up with the uh, infantry in an attack uh, to give them local uh, fire support. Uh, and then you would grade up through several um, several calibers. You get six-pounders, nine-pounders, 12-pounders. Anything above that becomes a level of siege artillery, really. And pound is just the weight of the of the shot. Why pound is the weight of the shot exactly? Now the British did have a newfangled <clears throat> thing called the Congreve rocket, which is a bit like a firework, but it operated in the same way as canister. It was it was like a, a piece of canister at the end of the stick, and you pointed it at the enemy, let it go, cut the fuse according to the range you wanted, and the idea was that this would burst uh, above the um, uh, enemy in the same way as a shrapnel shell would. And incidentally, the British are now using shrapnel as well, so that's an air burst. And it was used first, I believe, at the Battle of Leipzig um, by, a British, uh, by a British contingent. And it worked absolutely perfect. One shot fired above a, a French column, knocked out 40, 50 uh, people. But of course, it's really erratic because there's no way of directing these projectiles after they're, they're gone. There's no barrel to keep it, uh, keep it on course. And very often, these things shot up in the air. Sometimes they even came back towards the position from whence they were, uh, whence they were, whence they were fired from. It did work once very well, uh, just before Waterloo, the 17th, uh, during the great retreat of uh, Wellington Central Column through, through Genappe. And one of these rockets actually landed underneath a battery of, uh, of guns and, and killed the crew. Excellent. So uh, that was the great, great granddaddy of uh, HIMARS, I, I guess. think you might call it. But of course, the, the ironic thing is the British, as ever, <clears throat> were quite keen to make money out of their military activities. And so uh, in 18, well, in uh, March of that year, the start of the 100 days, they put on a demonstration, I think, at Cap d'Antibes for, I think, the king of um, Sicily, who wanted to buy these things and be persuaded that this is the new, this is the new way forward. And uh, a great gala occasion had been laid on to tent with a picnic and chill champagne and all the rest of it. They were about to give, um, give the demonstration, let these things off over the sea, when the battery sergeant comes up breathlessly and says, wait a minute, wait a minute, there's a little flotilla of ships. They did not know that that little flotilla of ships contained Napoleon Bonaparte on his way to the landing of France. It could easily have solved the whole thing before the 18th of June. OK, well, there were also cavalry, both the British, well, the Wellington's army and uh, Napoleon's army. Yes, and... Um, Napoleon has, uh, has a superiority in cavalry and he's um, comprising heavy cavalry, famously the cuirassier, big men on big horses 
with brass helmets, with horsehair plumes, looking a bit like Roman cavalry, uh, long, heavy uh, swords. These are shock troops. These are the troops that are meant to uh, rip into a body of infantry or opposing cavalry and just and just tear them apart. He also uses uh, light cavalry, um, which uh, in a uh, in an ideal situation in an attacking campaign, he will use not just as scouts but to mask his his manoeuvres, so as to completely bamboozle the enemy as to where the main body of his own uh, of his own troops lie. Um, Wellington has cavalry as well, not so many. Um, he has heavy cavalry, which again he will be able to use as shock troops, and he also has um, as light cavalry. Um, at Waterloo, um, the heavy cavalry is used in its classical way to break up an attack. It's that attack that we were talking about, launched early on in the in the day, where the initial success was absolutely stupendous because the timing was so good uh, we may talk about that a little bit later within the context of the of the battle all three armies had cavalry that did pretty similar similar things and not all of them were just armed with swords uh, french had polish lancers uh, which would do great damage to some of the british uh, cavalry and dragoons dragoons were uh, cavalry regiments that also would have had a carbine which is like a small musket or a small um, or a small rifle. Would, would they dismount or would they be firing from the saddle? They would dismount. And there's an instance of that again on the 17th when Sir Hussey Vivian's um, uh, division is retreating from Kachbra. Uh, the retreat happens to three columns and his is the easternmost one. And they're crossing the uh, river, river Deal and the French cavalry are on their heels uh, pretty hard and pretty fast. And Sir Hussey Vivian's dragoons get off and line the riverbank, uh, and thereby provide covering fire for those of their comrades who haven't got uh, who haven't got across. Lastly, muskets and rifles. Yes, well, the standard uh, weapon is the musket. It's smooth ball, so it's not uh, particularly accurate. Um, most muskets now are fired using uh, cartridges whereby the gunpowder of the ball come in a single packet. And so the soldier firing it has to bite it open, uh, pour some of the cartridge down the barrel and into the, into the firing area where the flintlock will make a spark and it gives the, uh, ignites the gunpowder. And of course the barrel is placed, the ball is placed down under that and rammed down with a ram wad with a piece of wadding on top just to hold it, uh, hold it in place. Um, it required an enormous amount of uh, drill to make sure that soldiers were able to do this speedily and to fire in, in concert. And it's because these weapons were so inaccurate uh, and it was pointless in trying to use uh, deliberately aimed fire that troops were formed up in very tightly um, uh, formed ranks. So essentially what they were doing against an enemy is, say, firing twice a minute. If you're a British battalion, well-formed, say that's a 1,000. Well, if you're lucky, uh, twice a minute, you've got about 2,000 musket balls uh, heading towards your enemy between ranges, say, 40 to, 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 100, to 100 yards. And were the French and Wellington's uh, soldiers, were they able to fire their muskets at roughly the same rate or were, was one side better than the other? The answer is I think it was highly, highly variable. Depending on the regiment? Depending on the regiment, uh, depending on uh, how, well they'd been, uh, how well they'd been drilled. By this time of, of the wars, 
the British are uh, benefiting from substantial improvements in their battlefield uh, drill. Um, and this, this dates from the early 1800s, uh, particularly from around about, well, from 1801, where they begin to merge successfully two style of, uh, of battlefield tactics. One is for line troops, uh, heavy regiments, uh, who were, whose job on the battlefield is to stand shoulder to shoulder firing at the edge. And the drill book um, drawn up by Sir David Dundas, uh, known as Old Pivot, uh, looks back to the days of Frederick the the Great, who absolutely perfected um, synchronised battlefield uh, manoeuvres, but they also combined it with what they called the uh, the American style, which is the open form of um, use of infantry, uh, using rifles and open order, and this is uh, what lies behind the innovation of British uh, light troops and skirmishing. Uh, the French have an equivalent, which is why the British are keen to develop it themselves. Uh, their equivalent is uh, the voltigeurs. And uh, the French use clouds of these skirmishers going ahead of battlefield uh, columns. And they're f- trained to fight uh, individually or in, or in pairs. And their job is to lie down and just keep up um, a smattering of fire against troops who can't really fire back. And not only is it meant to be effective in terms of actually delivering wounds and perhaps death, but also demoralisation before a vast French yes. attacking column so actually like hits them. snipers in the First World War. Yeah, almost. it is like that, but clouds at them. Yes. Excellent. OK, I think the time has arrived to discuss the battle. June the 18th is a Sunday. It's been a terrible night the night before, poured with rain, even though it's June, it's freezing cold. But before all of this, there are a couple of other battles, and I think we should just quickly get into them before we start on the main. So what happens before? Napoleon's got the momentum. His strategy is to divide Wellington's army from the Prussians, and off he goes. Yes, in essence, he's uh, succeeded uh, by the time we get to the uh, 16th. Uh, Wellington's army is still uh, spread out because Wellington has been sensitive about an attack coming across, down a road uh, from uh, Mons to uh, Mont Saint-Jean. It's an alternative way into, into Brussels. And he feels he hasn't had the concrete information that will enable him to consolidate his army one way or another. And he knows if he does consolidate his army, gets it wrong, then the whole game is probably over. Is is he concerned about being cut off from the coast? Is that one of his things? That, yes, he is concerned about being cut off from the coast. And as a result of that, there's a conference between Blucher and Wellington before the campaign at a place called Turlmore. Um, Blucher suggests, actually, Wellington, why didn't you muster your army close to uh, mine uh, south and east of, uh, of Brussels? So we're actually starting all together. Um, the problem with that was it would have left uh, Brussels vulnerable and it would have left the British army highly vulnerable to a an attack by Napoleon which would cut them off from their supply line to Ostend. And also he might have put uh, Antwerp, the great naval base, at, at risk. So both of them then decide to arrange their armies south of uh, Brussels, which means 
that Brussels is protected. Wellington's lines of communication are a bit better protected, um, but it means they don't have much space to react in. Napoleon gets in between them very, very quickly. Uh, he has a good chance of uh, uh, catching at least one of them before they both are consolidated. And that's exactly what, uh, exactly what happens. Um, so on the morning of the 16th, Blucher is, has decided to give battle to, to Napoleon, who's picking, picking him off first. Napoleon has detached the body of over 30,000 troops under Marshal Ney eastwards on the road that goes directly from Charlois uh, through Cachbra, through Waterloo, in fact, and on to, on, on to Brussels, hoping to palm off Wellington's army so it doesn't come to the help of Blucher. Sorry, eastwards or westwards? Uh, westwards. And um, that's, that too is exactly what, what happens. Uh, it is unfortunate for Napoleon that uh, Marshal Ney doesn't attack uh, the Kachbra position with vigour early on. A couple of possible reasons for this. The late great David Chandler says that by now, Ney, in his view, is bomb-happy. You know, he's been through it all now. For years and years and years as a fighting soldier, uh, and particularly recently, there was uh, the retreat from Moscow, there's 1813. He's gone over to the Royalists in 1814, then back to Napoleon in 1814. Um, he catches up his command at the last minute, so he doesn't know his staff, he doesn't know his men. It's not a very uh, handy place from which to start managing a corps in the face of what looks like being a major pitched battle. The, the second factor is that he has fought Wellington, he knows against Wellington, uh, in the peninsula and being beaten by him. And he knows that Wellington has this tactical habit of hiding his troops behind physical features, be it a ridge or wood or, or whatever. So he delays. Had he launched a full-out attack that morning, uh, there were only uh, somewhere between ten and 16,000 Dutch and Belgian troops in, in front of him. And he could have gone right the way through, almost to uh, almost through to Mont Saint Jean and, and and Waterloo, but he holds back. And Wellington is uh, has by now given his army uh, orders to consolidate and muster at Catchbrath. The story of the day is of the French escalating their attacks while Wellington's army is arriving in increasing uh, numbers, and around about. So is that yeah. where he wanted to fight? The full battle, then, is that where he thought it would be, Catrabar, rather than? No, not in the, not in the slightest. Um, Napoleon has made up his mind. He wants to smash Blucher at uh, Aglini. He wants at this early stage of the day just to keep Wellington out of it, and then he can turn around with two thirds of his army, having smashed the um, having smashed the uh, Prussians, and turn the whole weight of his force onto onto Wellington's army. He changes his plan during during the day. Uh, and late in the afternoon, he sends orders to um, the General Durlon, who's a large part of, of Ney's army, he has a corps of about 20,000 men. Um, he says, march to me. Now, it so happens that there's uh, an old Roman road that goes from the French position at Couchbras right onto the western wing of the, the Prussian army, and that is exactly where... Uh, Napoleon has seen an opportunity for an envelopment, which means that Ney's going to have to change his battlefield tactics a bit. And instead of looking for outright victory, perhaps just to mask whatever's happening at Catchbar itself. 
However, this is where Paul's staff work comes into it, because nobody has been able to give Nay clear orders as to why this is happening. And he can't understand why suddenly 20,000 men from his command is marching into the far distance, when, as far as he's concerned, the last order he's had from the emperor is to drive Wellington away from this strategic crossroads at Cashbra. So he then sends an order to uh, Durlong, who's just beginning to arrive on the battlefield at, uh, at Ligny, to return. And Napoleon, standing on his uh, windmill at Fleurieu, sees his troops begin to arrive in the distance exactly where he wants them, then sees them begin to turn around again. And so Donald spends the whole of that day marching from one battlefield to the other and not making a significant contribution in uh, significant contribution in, in either. And by about four o'clock in the afternoon, Wellington is able to tip the balance in terms of numerical uh, superiority. And later on that afternoon in the early evening, he conducts a general counterattack right across the battlefield that pushes the French back to their uh, back to their starting positions. But of course, his strategic position the next morning is potentially very, very vulnerable. He doesn't know what's happened to Blücher. Uh, he knows that Blücher's had a bit of a hammering, but he doesn't know where he is. Uh, the difficulty is he doesn't know whether he's going to stay put and Blucher will come to him, or whether he will have to move out and go to Blucher. So unless he has that concrete piece of um, information, he's staying put for the moment. But he sends out very early on a staff officer to find out where Blucher is, and that is when the key decision is made to retreat back towards uh, Mont Saint-Jean and the Waterloo position. And the Waterloo position is the position that he'd favoured all along? He knew about the position, I don't think he necessarily uh, favoured it all along. When in 1814 he was returned to Paris as, uh, as ambassador, uh, one of his jobs was to inspect the frontier fortresses on the uh, Dutch-Belgian borders, which were all part of the debate um, at the Congress of Vienna. He wanted to inspect them, see what condition they were in, because the French are going to pay for the refurbishment of the, these fortresses and thereby contribute to the defences of the Netherlands, which now, of course, is Holland and, and, and uh, Belgium. And on the way, he goes through the Mont Saint-Jean uh, position and notices that it's on one of the main roads into uh, Belgium from France and indeed goes directly towards um, Brussels and therefore inspects it with, with interest. And a sketch is made, it's in the um, Museum of the Royal Engineers, of the ridge at Mont Saint-Jean, which is the Waterloo position. Waterloo is a, is, is a village some miles, six miles behind uh, Mont Saint-Jean. And the sketch exists with uh, various buildings, and in particular La Haye Saint. The only difference is whoever did the sketch put La Haye Saint on the wrong side of the road. But it is un, un, it's, he, he knew about this position. So when he was in this strategic quandary as to what he should do, he knows that if he has to retreat back towards Brussels um, in order to get closer to Blücher, this is an ideal place for him to be. And that is why he's able to say to Blücher, that is where I will make a stand if you can send me troops. And if you were to, to tell me why, what is the primary reason why he thinks it's a good place to, to fight this battle? Uh, it has all the uh, features that Wellington liked in a, a defensive position. There's a ridge. Well, in fact, there's parallel ridges um, 
one to the north, one to the south. The one to the south, which eventually become Napoleon's position, is just slightly higher than the northern one. But the northern one, not only does it have some very steep slopes in front of it, it has a very pronounced rear slope. And Wellington recognises this is ideal for one of his favourite tactics, which is to hide his troops, not only so the enemy can't see them and see where the density of his formations are, but also to shelter them from artillery fire. More than that, it lies slap bang wallop astride the highway uh, towards uh, Brussels. And more than that, it has three sets of buildings almost built into the ridge, slightly below the uh, the crest of the ridge. To the west, there's a manor farm complex with walls and a walled garden called Ugamont, which is ideal for defensive purposes. But it's bang next door to the second road that comes into the position, and that's the road from Mons to, to, to Brussels. And Ugamont, you can see, is very valuable as a fortified position, not just for his ridge, but for that other road. And he fully expects that um, Napoleon will use his powers of manoeuvre and perhaps use that road as well as the main high road. The second set of buildings is the Farm of the Hay Saint, which again is a walled farm right adjacent to um, the main high road, just below his position. And the third group is uh, 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 fr- um, uh, between Frischemont and Papelotte, where there's a uh, little village and another farmhouse with a building. And the great thing about these farmhouses, these farmhouses, is they're not too far away from the main position, which means they can be supported. Yes, if you're a, a regiment and you're sent to man that too far out in front of your army, it must be a fairly terrifying prospect. You become isolated. Um, the enemy would be able to bring up artillery at will. Uh, surround the buildings and take them take them piecemeal. Okay, the battle. So we've got an idea of the layout of of the forces. Uh, the layout on on Napoleon's side, uh, south of Wellington. What's that? Napoleon arranges his army in a shape that looks like a like a T. And if you look at it from a bird's eye point of view, you will see that the short branch of the T lies along the top of the southern uh, ridge. Both ridges, incidentally, head pretty much east-west. East, right in the middle is, uh, of the front is this little hamlet called La, La Belle Alliance. Uh, to the right-hand side, or to the eastern side of that, he puts one whole corps, which is Derlon's corps. That's the one that spent the whole of the 16th marching up and down, but hasn't been engaged. And to the west side of La Belle Alliance, he uh, locates another corps, Obs Ugamont commanded by Ray. Ray and Derlon, incidentally, are two generals that have fought Wellington time and time again in the uh, in the peninsula. Strung out along the long branch or stem of the uh, tree are his supporting cavalry, uh, the 6th Corps under Lobo, a small corps of only about seven to 8,000 uh, men, and, of course, the Imperial Guard, which is his key reserve of about 20,000 troops. And the idea is that he is going to launch an opening hammer blow uh, attack. And once Wellington's line begins to crumble or even breach, then he has all his troops in position to follow up both cavalry and infantry um, to push their way push their way through. It's a very, very condensed position. And we didn't actually mention Wellington's disposition. So if you're sitting in Napoleon's seat in the middle, looking across from your ridge to the next ridge... 
from west to east, how has Wellington deployed his men? Um, Napoleon wouldn't have seen very much of it um, because of the rear slope uh, position. <clears throat> he would see uh, skirmishers. He would see that the buildings had been occupied. He would understand uh, quickly the strategic importance of those uh, buildings. He knows the lie of the land. Um, Marshal Soult was actually fighting uh, in the same area um, during the wars of the French uh, Revolution. So he, know, he knows the area and he knows that the crossroads um, behind uh, Wellington's position or the crossroads that he needs to get to cut him off from Brussels and also from wherever the Prussians might be. He also knows that behind Wellington's position is this vast forest called the Forêt de Soigny. And he doesn't understand that the Forêt de Soigny can be, uh, can be used. It's a cultivated forest. It's, uh, it's, it's copsed. It's got roads and lanes running through it. And Wellington knows that if things go wrong, he can put a rear guard on the edge of that forest and withdraw his army uh, through it if, if necessary. Um, Napoleon thinks that's an opportunity to crush him, uh, crush him against it. And I think that's one of the reasons he uses such a dense uh, tactic. But going back to Wellington's uh, positions, he's convinced that the main danger to his position is going to lie uh, between La Haye Saint, slap bang wallop in the middle of the position along the main high road, and which is guarding a shallow valley which goes from Le, uh, uh, La Belle Alliance round the edge of Wellington's uh, western position and also across that road that goes from Mons to, uh, Mons to Brussels. So he packs most of his troops in that area. His, um, arguably, some of his best troops, which are the light companies of the Guards Division, uh, with some Nassauers, are sent down to Hougoumont to fortify it. Um, some other excellent um, troops armed with rifles under Major George Baring are sent to um, occupy La, La Haye Saint. And most of his cavalry are behind the, the, the ridge formation in the western sector of the battlefield. The eastern sector is held by uh, excellent troops, but they've taken a mauling at uh, Catchbra, in particular Picton's uh, division. This is where the bulk of the uh, Scotch troops are. And this is the only place on the battlefield where you'll hear the, uh, where you'll hear the, uh, the bagpipes. Uh, the position's a strong one, but he believes that that is the area that the Prussians will emerge. Furthermore, the terrain in front of the eastern moat part of that battle it consists of some really deep sunken sunken roads, so it doesn't look quite as van, vulnerable to him as the the rest of the battlefield. So it, it's um it looks like a it looks like a triangle in a sense, with the thick part of the triangle in the uh, western part of the battlefield and the narrow part of, along the line on the east. Right, it's been a terrible night. It's rained, and so the ground is soggy. When does kickoff start? Well, Napoleon would like to kick off as early as possible. Uh, he's up in the very early hours of morning. You know, he he sleeps fitfully. Um, he's already sent a group of cavalry in the night to uh, the night before to march up the road and suddenly received by cannon shots. He's now he's absolutely convinced that Wellington's staying there to to fight. But he wants to get this battle uh, over and done with as 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 soon as possible, because he doesn't need just need a military success. 
he needs uh, a cataclysmic political success because not forgetting he, he came to power as a result of a military coup. Not everybody else uh, wants Napoleon there. And indeed, there's been a, uh, a revolt in the Vendée already. So he needs an outright victory as, uh, as soon as possible. His problem is his army isn't all there. They're still strung out on, on, on the march. Uh, you know, the old guard, well, all the guards, some of them are still down at uh, Genappe. You know, not everyone's in position. And you'll hear stories about Napoleon waiting for the, the ground to dry out so he can manoeuvre his, his his cannon, which I think is absolute nonsense. With the amount of rain there had been, it just isn't going to dry out suitably so you can manoeuvre anything through it. It's just not going to happen. It's already incredibly soggy. He's just waiting for his troops to come out so he can launch that attack. What he does do is start to uh, muster a huge body of artillery on a subsidiary slope in front of his uh, position. It's become known in history as the Grand Battery, and it will comprise, by the opening of the uh, the main attack, 82 uh, guns firing directly at the centre and the eastern part of Wellington's uh, position. Was uh, Wellington's position visible from there, or what, they just were they still over the ridge? Uh, Wellington's position was not visible from there. And the combination of the ridge and the fact that the ground is so wet meant that actually um, that opening half-hour's uh, assault by the Grand Battery uh, wasn't as effective as it might have been. So that shot didn't graze. Uh, it just sank into the, in, into the mud. A great deal of the shot actually went to the front face of the ridge and just didn't move. Uh, and when they were shooting behind the ridge, they were taking potluck, because that's where they imagined the, uh, the troops were. In addition to using hard shot, uh, they used shells, which were hollow um, hollow piece of metal stack full of gunpowder. And you could lob these up and they would fall on the ground, fizzing, because they had a fuse in, and they'd just go bang, uh, which are horribly effective to bodies of waiting troops because they had the same effect as uh, shrapnel in essence. Uh, but even some of those just sunk into the into the crowd. His plan for the opening attack is to uh, start an attack at Hougoumont. Uh, don't forget that's over on the western edge of the battlefield. He knows Wellington's sensitive about that because he can sense the amount of uh, care that Wellington's been taken over the positions there. And he hopes uh, it will create a diversion so that Wellington will move troops away from his centre down to protect Hougoumont. Um, and the idea is that the Grand Battery will open up at, uh, at 1 o'clock and at 1.30 or thereabouts, um, Dernon's Corps, the whole of Dernon's Corps, 17,700 uh, infantry in four divisions are going to march across the valley and smash into the centre and eastern part, the more lightly held, although Napoleon doesn't that, of, of Wellington's line, supported um, on the western flank by 1,200 cuirassiers. So these are the heavy cavalry uh, shock troops. And it is quite clear that this is the manoeuvre that Napoleon wants to win the battle. He wants a knockout blow. He doesn't want to do anything clever. He doesn't want to fly like a butterfly, sting like a bee in Muhammad Ali by parlance. He wants to smash his way through and take those crossroads. The wrecking ball. Did um, did that require Hougoumont to be taken for that manoeuvre to work? That does not require Hougoumont to be taken. Uh, Hougoumont, uh, for the purposes of this opening act, is simply to apply pressure to induce Wellington to... Um, remove troops from his centre uh, to protect Ukamor. And indeed, when the battle opens up, 
uh, with um, gunfire at 11.30, cannon fire first before the initial infantry attack on Hugomor. Um, that is where Wellington spends that early part of the early part of the battle. He's on the hill behind Ugamo watching watching proceedings there, and uh, again gets involved in the minutiae of some of the tactical developments there. In, in front of Waterloo, just to the south, there was a wood, quite a thick wood, and the French troops had to march through that in order to come up to the farm buildings. Um, and Wellington gives direct orders to a battery guns uh, run by somebody called Captain uh, Captain Bull. And he says, look, instead of firing round shot once they've reached the wood, you now need to lob in uh, shrapnel and, and howitzer fire. So he's put, taking a lot of care in that uh, sector, which is why he's not in a central position when the main attack opens up at one thirty. How is he being kept informed, Wellington, uh, about what's going on elsewhere on the battlefield? It's a really good question. Um, he's been kept informed partially by his own efforts of moving up and down, and that's why he does want to move up and down, um, because he knows that if he goes from crisis point to crisis point, not only can he control what's going on there, but he can uh, develop um, uh, a sense of how the battle is is developing. Um, he doesn't know what Napoleon is going to do, so he simply has to wait and uh, react. You know, it's not as though he's got a balloon that can fly over uh, Napoleon's positions and and see what they're what they're like. And another piece of information uh, which he lacked earlier on in the campaign is that he had uh, an information officer, somebody called Cahoon Grant, um, actually operating in France. And his job was to inform Wellington uh, immediately he knew where the main blow of Napoleon's um, forces will strike at the opening of the campaign. And Cahoon Grant works out that it's going to be at Chalois and not at Mons, so on that short direct road to Brussels. And he writes a note to um, Wellington saying this is the direction it's going to happen. And the note is given to uh, Major General Dornberg, who's in charge, the German in charge of the German cavalry at that point. He doesn't know who Cahoon Grant is. This is an example of not an army not being matched tight. So he pops it in his pocket and it doesn't get to Wellington quite late. So Wellington, in a campaign sense as well as in a battle sense, is waiting to react. All he can do is get comfy with his own positions and wait and see what happens. Yes. Uh, also, what I meant with the communication on his own side is, does he have uh, young men on horses toing and throwing? Yes, he has quite a lot of staff, officers uh, mounted on good horses, normally of uh, a relatively high rank. Um, so it means they have some authority when they get to where they're meant to be going and explaining their orders. Um, in an ideal world, you would have enough of staff officers with messages absolutely critical. We'd probably send two by two different routes or whatever. Uh, and that is a key way in which he keeps control of the, of the battlefield. But of course, as the staff gets uh, repeatedly diminished throughout the day, so he has to do more and more of it um, himself. So this, this French attack in the centre goes in, goes down the hill and up the other side and starts hammering away. What, what happens? Um, four great divisions um, slope off and they advance in echelon. Uh, from the left. Nechelon means that the left-hand division starts first and then there's a gap of, say, 50 minutes and the next one goes and the next one and the next one. So there are a whole series of uh, hammer blows. 
And the idea is, the minute the first hammer blow hits the line, it will suck in troops around about it. So the next one will come in onto the flank of those troops that have been sucked in, do some more. And eventually you use um, overwhelming local advantage of troops to overwhelm the, overwhelm the enemy. Now the easternmost uh, uh, column is directed at La Haye Saint, uh, which is, you remember, the farm right in the middle of the battlefield. And the other three come up on the western side of it, straight up the straight up the slope of the ridge. In order to get there, they've had to go through the Grand Battery, which uh, signals what's going on because the Grand Battery has to has to stop while they're going across the while they're going across the uh, uh, battlefield. So those officers on the the, the ridge that will form the critical part, in particular. Uh, Major Generals Thomas Picton and Uxbridge, who are in charge of the cavalry, can see exactly what's uh, what's going on. Um, we should have mentioned that the way that Wellington had dispersed his artillery was completely different to uh, Napoleon. Napoleon has about 100 guns more than uh, Wellington. And Wellington has dispersed them along the line of his ridge rather than forming them into one great big battering ram uh, for two reasons. One, he doesn't intend to attack. He's going to pin himself to that ridge until Blucher arrives. Uh, the second is he knows there are going to be some pretty heavy attacks and he wants them used as personnel killers rather than battering rams on a, on a, on a particular point. So these columns are opened up upon um, by British artillery, German artillery, uh, from uh, almost the entire duration of their, of, of their march. And then when they get close to the top of the ridge, uh, they are received by rolling volleys of, 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 of musketry. Um, two of those columns, at least, managed to get through the hedgerow that lined the top of the ridge. Now, right in the middle of that eastern part of the battlefield, between La Haye Saint and Papalot, there was a, a little plateau, a, uh, a flat bit. And one of the French divisions just begins to get onto the top of that, having pushed away a battalion of Dutch troops, uh, which pull out of the line to reform back. Now, the British line there is formed in two parts. You've got the uh, front line, which is directly managing the hedgerow, and another line, a second line, in support of it. And it is now that Major General um, Picton uh, sees that the second line needs to come forward and support the first, which it does. However, on the plateau, um, the French are achieving uh, an enormous superiority of perhaps four to five to one because the brigade in front of them has cracked and is reforming uh, behind. So Major General Sir Dennis Pack gives the immortal order to the uh, Gordon Islanders. Uh, all in front of you has given away. You must give a chop volley and charge, which is exactly what they do. But they aren't weighty enough to push the whole column, which is about 4,000 people. Uh, one battalion, Gordon Highlanders, well, it's a very small battalion now, possibly 600 effectives after, after Catch Bra, possibly even less than, uh, less than that. Um, it staggers and stops the deployment of the column from column into a firing lane in, in, um, uh, on that plateau. And it's at that moment that um, Uxbridge has been able to bring up the Union Brigade, that's the Heavy Cavalry Brigade, and he orders it to uh, charge and they start uh, moving up the rear slope and they move over the top of the ridge and charge right into the meat of those uh, French columns with a devastating impact, you know, big men on big horses 
uh, sabering uh, right into the centre of these columns, and two of the French eagles, these uh, very emotive uh, standards which have been given personally to the 40th, 45th and 105th uh, Regiment of, of Line are, are, are captured, one by the Scots Greys and one by the Royal Dragoons. OK, so, so that cavalry charge comes over the top of the ridge. Uh, these echelons, the one, two, three, four, yeah. do, do they hit all four of them on the, on the face, face down or do they come in at the side? Um, most of them hit on the face. Um, part of the um, household brigade, which is charging at the same time... They're, they're on the west side. The I west think. side of the yeah. road. And their job is to uh, attack the cavalry that's accompanying this great, uh, a great attack. Um, there just isn't room for them all to get around there. So some of them get into the lane that runs along the top of the ridge. They go around the back of the Hay Saint, uh, down the main um, uh, road and into the side of one of the French columns. And that helps break that one up. So that cavalry charge, heavy cavalry charge, despite Wellington's feelings about cavalry, is a huge success but unfortunately... Unfortunately, um, they get a rush of blood to the head and they go, uh, go too far. Um, interesting to note, the, the members of the Union Brigade, so that's the Scots Greys and the uh, Inskillings... On the east. On the east, um, are not veterans. You know, the Scots Greys haven't actually fought in a European uh, context since the 1790s in, in Flanders. They've been on principally on police duty in Ireland. And although the, the initial shock of the attack is, is, is immense, they just, with the excitement of it all, keep on going. And uh, the colonel is, of the regiment is seen with his reins between his teeth because both of his arms are useless by this stage. And uh, he drops the reins and he shouts, charge the guns. And so pockets of horsemen come out of the bottom of the valley and start charging the Grand Battery where they have uh, a bit of fun sabring the gunners. But none of them get off their horses and spike the guns. They don't. So long-term damage is, right. is not done. And the Household Brigade um, has a similar problem. They rush through, I mean, they literally throw over the cuirassiers. One witness on that part of the battlefield says it sounded like a whole lot of tinkers at work because not only was a, a clattering of sword on sword but sword on breastplate as, uh, as well. And they overthrow the cuirassier and they go right up to the French front line um, and uh, where the vulnerable had found upon them, they, they return. But despite recall signals being ordered by uh, the Major General in charge of the Union Brigade, uh, something called Punsby and indeed Duxbridge him, uh, himself, uh, it just doesn't work. And uh, Napoleon at this stage is present at the front of the battlefield, at the centre of the battlefield, and he's seeing what's going on. He personally gives orders for Curiasse to attack the front of these horsemen and also to bring in the um, Jacquinot's uh, lancers. They come at right angles down the battlefield from east to west, catching these now discombobulated horsemen in groups and they get they get slaughtered. Yeah, and the horses are blown. Exhausted. And the horses are blown as well. A classic error of not doing combined arms, in a way. Or, well, actually, we discussed this in, a, in one of our very first um, uh, podcasts about the cavalry. And unless you were someone like Frederick the Great, it's very difficult to get your cavalry back. 
But is it true to say that the cavalry was a complete, was that it for the rest of the day? Or, or, or were they able to reform in some fashion and still be used later on? That was certainly not it for the rest of the day. Only two brigades had been involved. So that's, two, that's over 2,500 uh, horsemen. Uh, Wellington has available a total of 13,000 cavalry. So there is, there is other cavalry. And there's other heavy cavalry around too. It's just not, it's just not uh, British. But those two brigades are uh, taken back and reformed. And they will play um, part of the role that the cavalry plays generally when the French cavalry charge in the afternoon. I mean, huge numbers of them. Wellington's line is in square, uh, but he forms his uh, cavalry behind those squares so that they, they're in a position to counterattack once the French cavalry is out of formation and uh, they, take part in, uh, they take part in those countercharges. Um, but by the end of the day, the combination of that opening charge and their role in the rest of the battle means that each brigade suffers about 40% casualties. And their commander, the Union commander Ponsonby, is famously killed. He is famously killed. Uh, the manner of his killing uh, is thought to have been that he was actually taken prisoner and then shot. Uh, before that, the, um, uh, the traditional explanation was he'd actually been skewered by, by lancers. Yeah, and he, and, and he wasn't even riding his best horse on the big day. Uh, it was a good horse, but it was a light horse. It wasn't his charger. Uh, somebody described it as a as a bay hack. Uh, of course, the rest of the division, the rest of the brigade would have been on big, heavy horses. Yeah. Now, so that's over. That's around 2.30-ish. When do the Prussians start to arrive? As soon as the um, battery, the heavy battery, the grand battery opens fire at around about one o'clock, some troops are seen uh, appearing from the southeast. And Napoleon personally scans them with his te- telescope and sends a body of troops to find out who on earth they are because blue uniforms look like French uniforms and uh, a lot of the Prussian uniforms are dark blue or gray, dark grey. Um, and the message comes back that they're Prussians. And from that moment, the whole character of the battle begins to, uh, begins to change. For example... That small call that I mentioned earlier of uh, Lobbies was actually quite late moving into into uh, position. Had it been in position... Was this a position on the eastern side? No, straight down the centre, right. so it's on the long stem of the T. Yes, OK. Had it been in position, it might have been um, in a position to uh, counterattack once the French cavalry had seen off the Union and Household Brigades. Well, if you can imagine uh, another body of, say, 7,500 troops hitting that line that had already taken an enormous amount of punishment uh, and then supported by an extra weight of cavalry, um, it could have been a very, very useful, uh, very useful manoeuvre indeed. But Napoleon now senses that he's got to guard his south-eastern flank and he sends the whole corps over to... Uh, form a line to prevent the Prussians uh, Prussians arriving, because he gets more information that it's not just um, it's just a, a single corps, as it were, of Prussians arriving. Uh, it's it, it's the whole army, and uh, Waterloo now develops, I think, into two battles. Uh, 
One is the battle against uh, Wellington on his ridge, where he's pinned himself and he's waiting for the Prussians to come. And the other is this escalating battle against the uh, Prussians as uh, as they're arriving. Um, he thinks that he can, uh, if he can hold the Prussians off for a long period of time, then the more chance he has to finish off uh, Wellington and win the day. So that's a little bit about the the Prussians. Uh, then around, so then we're at about three o'clock now. What do the French do next? Well, a number of things have already happened. Um, one of the dangers looking at Waterloo as a series of, of phases is one forgets that there are things that happen in between uh, various phases. So these voltigeurs that I've uh, described um, are the, sent for the these skirmishes. skirmishes. Yeah. French skirmishers uh, are sent forward to keep uh, Wellington's line under fire, essentially. And it's extremely frustrating because these guys are in open order, which means they're not vulnerable to uh, volley fire. Uh, they can be picked off by uh, other skirmishes, but then they're a pretty numerous uh, bunch. The idea is they keep Wellington's line, you know, under tension in between various... Well, well, well attacks are being being mustered, and certainly while Dernon's division is being rearranged. Uh, even, even though the um, Wellington's men are on the reverse slope, they, they've snuck forward, haven't yeah, they? Yeah, absolutely. They, they sneak forward. And uh, Wellington is heard to give one of his most laconic comments, which is, oh, won't somebody drive those fellows, fellows away? Um, and the other thing that happens, of course, is that the Grand Battery opens up again, um, and there's still an enormous weight of artillery on the eastern side of um, Napoleon's uh, line as well. And so Wellington's army comes under a, a, a ferocious bombardment, and actually... It's a, a, a tribute to the uh, the French that they are able to keep these guns operating right until the last moment of the day. Um, somebody estimated that the uh, the Grand Battery before that main attack uh, fired somewhere over three thousand shells of different sorts. Um, that's a that's a phenomenal rate of phenomenal rate of fire, and they keep that up uh, pretty much the pretty much the whole day. Uh, other attacks go in at Ougamont. Battle of Ougamont becomes like a, a battle in itself. So what started... On, in the West. In the West. The West yeah. What started as a um, diversionary attack uh, now becomes greater than that and will eventually suck in uh, three quarters of uh, Ray's corps. Um, so Ougamont becomes uh, not just a diversion but a target in its, in, in its own right. And uh, seven concerted attacks are launched against Ugamore and fail during the course of the day. And the vital attritional equation here is that the French allocate more troops and take more casualties at Ugamore, uh, the Wellington. He feeds in um, reserves miserly to make sure that uh, Ugamore doesn't doesn't fall, but doesn't fall into the trap of pushing too much into it and leaving himself and he's uh, put some good well. men he's put some good men in there anyway hasn't he yes and it's predominantly um the uh, guards division that will continue to support Ugamore as as well from time to time um in order to help defeat attack he will send companies down from the ridge to participate in the fence and then they will go back up again Okay, so that's one thing that's going on throughout the day, effectively. Throughout the day, not, that's not just exactly in phase right. one or phase two. But the next big event for Wellington's army versus the French is the French cavalry attack. 
Yes. Um, and it's an enormous uh, attack. And one needs to perhaps ask why, why this has happened. It was authorised by Marshal Ney, who, as Napoleon's um, attention is increasingly being occupied by the escalating Prussian assault, so Ney increasingly becomes in charge of the of the front battle against uh, against Wellington. Now, huge cavalry charges have been used on the battlefields before, um, at, at at Eylau, for example, and, and at, uh, at Friedland. And there's no doubt that Ney thought at this time that he was launching cavalry charges from a position advantage, because he saw that Wellington's army was looking fragile. And one of the reasons he was looking fragile is there was quite a high casualty rate. You saw troops moving to the rear. You saw others going back for ammunition. There was a lot of movement. And not only that, uh, Wellington asks his front troops to come back a little bit even further to get more shelter from the, from, from the cannon fire. And they were lying well, down. They were lying down, yeah. yeah. Mm. And uh, Ney thinks that there's, uh, they're manoeuvring backwards. He thinks they're pulling out. He will launch initially uh, 6,000 uh, cavalry on a very, very narrow front. And the narrow front is squeezed between the Hay Saint, the farm on the centre of the battlefield, and Hougamont on, on, on the west. And the line he's attacking, or the route he's attacking, is shaped like a, like, like a funnel. So the narrow point of the funnel is between the two farms and the long bit of the funnel, fan-shaped if you will, is the Wellington position on the top of the ridge. Now he has to file, uh, sorry, he has to crush 6,000 cavalry in that first uh, assault through that narrow funnel in order to get to the ridge. Up a ridge which they rapidly churn into into, uh, a quagmire. Wellington's guns have been arranged at the top of the ridge uh, to fire down so they're taking casualties as they arrive. As they go over the top, Wellington has formed his infantry into a series of squares, but in a deliberate pattern, probably about 23 of them, um, in a checkerboard pattern. So not only can the front of these squares fire at the oncoming cavalry, but the cavalry is then forced to split up and whirl around them, and all sides of those squares can fire without a risk of hitting another one. By the time they've gone through all of that, right at the back, you have the um, uh, uh, Wellington's arranged his cavalry to to uh, counterattack. What about Wellington's guns? Aren't they spiked or dragged away? No, none of them are spiked, and none of them are dragged away. Uh, Wellington's given specific orders to his gunners to fire until they till the last moment, and then for the gunners to rush back and take shelter in in in, in the squares. Uh, some of them do so, and some of them actually take a wheel off and bowl it along uh, with them to prevent the guns being uh, dragged off or to give the illusion that they're out of uh, out of action. Then, of course, the minute the cavalry pull off, they go back to the guns and start firing again. There's one exception, and that's a battery of Royal Horse Artillery commanded by somebody called Captain Mercer. And he's immediately adjacent to, a, or in front of, uh, um, a square of Brunswickers, who are quite young troops, um, and they're looking, uh, they're militia, and they're looking very, very shaky. And he says, well, crikey, if I start telling my gunners to rush back, they'll think we're retiring, and they might get up and flee. 
And so he, he just remains there, um, firing away. And he gives this horrendous description of how he double shots his cannon with grape shot and round shot, and it just ploughs into the oncoming, oncoming French. And these attacks go on for two and a half hours, and he doesn't, and he doesn't move. And after about an hour and a half, the attack is reinforced so that by the time you get to uh, five o'clock in the afternoon, some 10,000 French cavalrymen will have been involved in this attack on exactly the same, on exactly the same site. Um, and the, the troops receive this cavalry with extraordinary stoicism. Uh, it must have been a, a fearsome sight. But I think their confidence grew as they could see what they uh, what they could do by holding firm. The worst part is every time the cavalry washed back to reform, uh, the cannonade opened up again, and this this caused immense uh, casualties to the square. But also must be very difficult for morale as well. And we mentioned combined operations earlier. If Ney was doing this in a different way, what should he have done when he sent his cavalry in? Well, this is this is exactly the point. And so if he sent his cavalry in, that would have forced uh, Wellington to form squares. To uh, Square was a classical formation to protect against uh, cavalry. If he had got his timing right, uh, then immediately behind the cavalry would be um, infantry in line formation, uh, which now would have an overwhelming firing advantage because by definition, if you're forming square out of a out of a battalion, say, of, say, 1,000 men, facing you would only be 25% of those men. So you immediately have a power advantage. Also, if he could have brought up horse artillery to combine, he could have uh, blasted those uh, those squares at, uh, at short range. But the infantry just wasn't, wasn't there. And the horse artillery, what were they up to? Um, he didn't order them forward. Horse artillery does come forward later on in the day when it accompanies the final attack of the old guard and causes immense damage. Ney was incredibly brave. He was supposedly the bravest of the brave and he got a bollocking from Napoleon for his performance at Quatre Bras. So was he just reckless? I don't think he was reckless. I don't think he was the most talented battlefield commander. He's doing what Ney always did. And you could argue the problem was appointing Ney in the first place. Uh, he was the soldier-soldier. This was the man who commanded the rear guard standing in line with a musket <coughs> coming, out of, coming out of Russia. Uh, that was his, that was his, his style. Um, other talent was available to uh, Napoleon, but he posted them elsewhere, including one of his best marshals, um, Marshal Davout, who he left in uh, charge of, um, essentially in charge of Paris as his man, where incidentally he wasn't, uh, didn't have an enormous amount of political support in, 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 in Paris. Uh, Jean Rapp, who'd been placed in charge of the army of the, of, of, of the Rhine. Clausel, one of his most competent marshals, that was placed with the army of the Pyrenees. You know, he was short of marshals and ended up uh, appointing Ney to a very critical position, and arguably Ney wasn't up to conducting uh, a clever battle. So we're now moving towards the uh, early evening, and this French cavalry, these attacks go in, uh, several of them. What, what are they eventually followed up by? They peter out. The big story for Napoleon is trying to stop the uh, Prussians, who are now getting closer and closer, 
cutting that main road. Because if they cut the main road, that's his main road um, out. And also, he's now beginning to gamble. He knows that uh, a tactical withdrawal just isn't isn't good enough. You know, he's got and he's he's already sent messages back to Paris saying, "I won two fantastic victories at uh, at Ligny and Catch Bras." So you know, everybody's just waiting for the ne- for the next victory. And an expensive tactical withdrawal isn't going to do it. So he 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 gambles. And he throws the young guard into Planchenois. The Planchenois is a village which is just behind the um, eastern um, uh, his eastern line. It's like a it's, it's like a it's like a kidney. So the Prussians are effectively conducting a kidney punch. But he's also very close to that main road, and he doesn't want that cut. He can't afford to have that cut. So his last reserve is essentially his guard. And gradually he's feeding it into the Prussian sector. Young guard first, and then some um, elements of the the old guard as um, as well. But he still feels if he can block the Prussians for long enough, he'll have enough in the tank to launch a final assault against Wellington on the ridge. But he thinks he, he must be close to breaking breaking now. This is where the gamble comes in. The problem is, the moment that would have been perfectly apposite. Uh, for such an attack comes at around about six o'clock when Ney succeeds in taking the farmhouse at La Haye Saint, and he rapidly follows it up by bringing a couple of cannon onto the ridge behind, that's say just the north of La Haye Saint, from where he's able to conduct um, uh, a bombardment in the centre of Wellington's line, which begins to which begins to melt, uh, and at that point he sends a because he has no reserves left. He sends a message to uh, Napoleon, say, look, the time is right, this is what's happening, please send me some more troops. And allegedly, Napoleon cries out, troops, troops, where are I going to get them from? Do you expect me to make them? But that would have been the, the critical moment. The truth of the matter is, um, Napoleon needed to shore up that village of Planche Noir before he could consider anything else at all. And about 45 minutes later, that's exactly exactly what happens. So he comes forward. For the first time in the battle since, you know, the, the the morning time when he's been observing what the Scots Greys do. And he now agrees with Ney and thinks the time is right for, 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 for an attack. And this attack will be spearheaded by eight battalions of the uh, Imperial Old Guard. Um, and it's not just them, it'll be an all-out attack. So the remnants and the exhausted remnants of Durland's division will attack in the east. There'll be another um, attack on Hougoumont, and part of this will be the attack by the Imperial Guard, which will fall between Hougoumont and uh, La Haye Saint. Um, by now, Wellington has consolidated his position. He's picked off the gunners that Ney brought up using uh, riflemen. When we spoke about weapons, we didn't mention that uh, a number of British troops and German troops are um, uh, equipped with the um, with the Baker rifle, which is more accurate than a musket because it's got a rifled rifle barrel. So you essentially as sharpshooters to pick off the pick off the gunners, reduce that problem. You can bring more troops into the sector, and also quite a long way behind um, the Hay Saint, but also guarding that road from Mons in again, which is the alternative road into Brussels. He still has some reserves there, including famously the. 52nd uh, Regiment of uh, Foot, commanded by Sir John Colborne, which is is a strong battalion, 
just over a thousand people strong. He could bring that in to reinforce the line. So he adjusts his position. He could bring more cannon forward. And so the guard, the old guard, is going to attack almost exactly on the same line along the same route that the cavalry took over this steep slope and this churned up ground uh, covered in, in, in bodies. But here's a moment of, of drama as Napoleon leads the guard forward by himself with his staff. And he rides from La Belle Alliance to the orchard at La Haye Saint. The orchard at La Haye Saint just off the southern end of the, of the building. And there he launches the attack before returning to La Belle Alliance, which is a viewpoint for where you can see what's, what's going on. Three battalions of the old guard are left to the right-hand side of the road um, as if to form a second wave of attack. Uh, one battalion is placed over towards Hougoumont um, as a reserve to cover any any withdrawal, and the remainder are sent up the ridge uh, with a battery of um, with a battery of horse horse artillery. And again, they were meant to attack in um, echelon uh, from the right this time. Um, but the lie of the land, which you can't quite see now because farming farming practices and this huge memorial has been built there by scraping up the earth, has somewhat uh, melted the contours, but the lie of the land rather split up that uh, arrangement. So these columns of the guard start hitting the line at uh, at different times. Uh, the first one to the east, adjacent to the Saint, uh, which is where the horse battery is brought up, um, is at first um, relatively uh, successful. Um, Wellington managed to stabilise the troops there. There's a, uh, there's a counterattack. Uh, but the counterattack doesn't succeed in pushing that uh, pushing that column off. They have to pull back to reform, and at that very moment, um, some Dutch troops and a Dutch battery turn up and basically knock uh, ten bells of hell out of that particular column and push it down down the slope. And the story is the same right the way along the line until very famously, uh, the last two columns hit the section where the uh, where the guards are. And they are formed four deep, lying down be behind the ridge. And the uh, French witnesses who survived said they couldn't really see much in front of them. They thought, you know, the army's given away, we'll just keep on marching and see what happens the other side. All they could see was some horsemen. And smoke, I suppose. Is it? Plenty of smoke. Yeah. Plenty of smoke. Um, and indeed, some of the uh, British say that they could hear these columns approaching because loud cries of vive l'empereur and the drums going, the pas de charge, which is a particularly fast beat that they used to help drive the troops uh, onwards. And they saw the tall bearskins with plumes of the, uh, of the grenadiers of the old guard uh, in silhouette against the clouds of smoke behind them. So they made them look like, look like giants. And then suddenly they started appearing, um, uh, appearing themselves. Um, the horsemen, two horsemen that could be seen, one was um, uh, 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 Major General Sir Peregrine Maitland, who was in charge of the guards actually on that, that spot, and the other was the Duke of Wellington himself. And famously, the Duke of Wellington has taken over command of this sector, and he waits and waits and waits, and he says, uh, now Maitland, now's your time. And Maitland said, up guards, make ready, fire, sunny, four ranks of uh, British guards start firing into the Imperial Guard and they just stagger the column and they follow so it up. So this is, a li- they're in line and they're well, firing four deep. into a... Uh, four deep. Four deep. Yeah. And they're firing into a column so they, they, they've they got greater weight of 
fire. That's they got a great way to fire power. But it was a sheer surprise as well of these people just suddenly um, appearing. And they go in with a, with a bayonet charge and pushes that column uh, down the ridge. And then the final column appears to the east of that, which, of course, outflanks the guards that are just charged. So they have to come back to the uh, top of the hill. And at this point, Sir John Colbert, who's commanding the 52nd, moves out of the line and places his regiment along the side of the approaching French column, so at right angles to the British line, down the front, uh, down the front slope. And uh, they start volleying fire and moving in at the same time as the troops at the top of the ridge, also firing at the head of the column. And for a few moments, this uh, brisk firefight uh, develops. And then the 52nd moved in uh, with a bayonet, bayonet charge, and the column uh, disappears and starts running down the hill. So you've got this extraordinary situation whereby you've got the remainder of the defending troops along the top of Wellington's Ridge, and the 52nd marching in um, at right angles right the way along, sweeping along the ridge in, in front of them. And uh, Wellington, by this stage, is down there with Colonel Colborne. He's seen what's going on. He's come down the ridge. He's got no staff with him at all at this stage. And he approves of what's going on. Yes. He says to Colborne, don't stop. They won't stand. Don't stop. And somehow his battlefield at Tenai have told him that that's, that's it. That's the crux of it. And he's right, because look at what's happening on the other side. The whole army has viewed um, Napoleon taking his guard forward for this final uh, attack. Um, alarmingly, they hear gunfire uh, over towards Planche Noire, and Napoleon has sent staff officers running up and down the line. One of them is uh, La Bedouillère, who rushes up and down the line with his, his, uh, his shaker on the point of his sword, saying, Voilà Grouchy, these are the French. Grouchy's coming. So in their mind, they suddenly think uh, the rest of the army's turned up and we're going to win the day. And suddenly the guards beaten off, uh, the Prussians break through at Planche Noire, and another corps of Prussians, um, commanded by Zeton, are breaking through at the end of Wellington's line in the east above uh, Papalot. And suddenly um, the army breaks and, and, and runs, and it's an absolute absolute rout. Uh, the French army. Yeah. And... and, and in a rout, often that's when you get very high casualties. Was was that the case here, or did they they get away? No, that was the case here, um, because Wellington immediately rides to the top of the ridge where he can be seen, and he stands up in his stirrups and he takes off his hat and he waves it three times directly towards the towards the French, and everybody knows what that means. That's the signal for not just a counter-attack, but an all-out attack by the British army, all the way from Hougoumont through to Papalot. So everybody comes off the ridge and starts pushing forward. And, of course, uh, in the last couple of hours, and particularly uh, after, well, during the course of the um, French cavalry attacks, uh, Wellington's managed to muster his cavalry into a central position. Initially, to counter-attack the, the French cavalry attacks, but because they're there, they can now follow up uh, the route of the, the guard. And as the army is, um, uh, is moving down, uh, they pull around the flanks of the infantry units going forward and take the attack forward to the, to the French line. And at that moment, is it no quarter? 
at that moment or, or would they take prisoners? Um, they would take prisoners, but uh, if there was resistance, you know, fighting still went on and there were formed bodies of troops. Uh, there were still those three battalions of guard, at, you know, down at La Haye Saint. They draw off in, in order and there's still some guard at um, La, La Belle Alliance. Um, one um, group of the Imperial Guard will follow Napoleon. Uh, Napoleon will take shelter in their square and they will see him off the battlefield before he can get into his coach and head off towards Genappe. OK, Hugh, so when does Napoleon leave the battlefield and how does it happen? Napoleon leaves the battlefield um, not long after the break of the, uh, 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 the guard because rushing towards him uh, as the Wellington's Allied Army, uh, Zeton's Prussian Corps, and even worse, uh, the attack being conducted by Blücher Planchois, uh, is moving through Planchois and is looking to cut off the um, cut off the line of retreat. He takes shelter in a guard square, and then he moves on rapidly to where his headquarters was at uh, uh, Le Caillou, um, and then he gets into his coach. Uh, with an escort of guard cavalry, makes his way back towards Genappe. And he's still hoping that he will be able to find or form uh, a formed body of troops around which other troops can coalesce and he can form, form a rear guard. It doesn't happen. What does happen is that Wellington and Blücher meet in the, in the gloaming and uh, Wellington basically hands over the responsibility for the pursuit to the to the Prussians, because his army is absolutely knackered. It's it's out on his feet, and the Prussians have an enormous quantity by now of of cavalry um, coming into play, which they can use to conduct the uh, to conduct the assault, which they do right the way through the night. And of course, the French are it's a sauve qui situation. Units have disintegrated, so individuals and little groups of soldiers under no authority, are just getting getting out of it. And there is a story that all the Prussians had to do was uh, 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 get a drummer boy with a drum, mount, mount him on the cart and keep drumming away just to keep the French moving. And there are traffic jams. So at Genappe, for example, there was one bridge into the, into the town and there's an enormous you know, block as French troops are going to get come through it. If they can't go through it, they have to go across the river on either side. Uh, the one body of troops that are formed and conduct themselves well, of course, ironically, is Grouchy's corps, which has been fighting the Prussians over at Wavre, which is only about 10, and 10 miles away. Once he receives news of uh, Napoleon's uh, utter defeat, he pulls his corps out and conducts a, um, a classical and very competent withdrawal in the face, uh, in the, face of the enemy. And uh, later on, when Napoleon gets uh, back to Paris, he's uh, you know busy coping with not just with the defeat, but on what he's going to do next. And he's trying to conjure up troops and formations uh, so he can continue the, the campaign. Uh, and Grouchy would form part of those plans. He wants to create uh, um, a consolidated force around about Reims in a central position east of uh, east of Paris, and he hopes to bolster it with troops from the south of Loire, where it's garrison troops, perhaps the troops that are coming out of suppressing the rebellion in the Vendée. You know, he's just playing playing with numbers. But the fact of the matter, he simply doesn't have the doesn't have the support. 
politically or, or militarily. And on the 22nd of uh, June, he, he abdicates. And, and is that something that he's just got uh, all his closest advisers are saying, this is what you've got to do? Or does he take this decision on his own? Um, he has no, no option. Talleyrand, Fouché, Lafayette, you know, the big beasts in the political jungle and indeed the Chamber of Deputies will say it's enough. And it's the he cannot get any political support. He only had limited political support in the um, in in the first place, and so he goes to uh, Malmaison, which is the now dead Josephine Chateau that he's given her uh, just uh, west of uh, west of Paris, and he holds up there for a short while, um, and Paris falls, and they make it known that uh, they want to get hold of Napoleon and kill him. Now Davout who is momentarily in charge of the troops in Paris and will participate in the peace negotiations, the armistice negotiation, says to Napoleon, um, you, you need to go. And he helpfully blows a couple of bridges in the river en route to um, Malmaison just to hold, the, to hold them up a bit. And at that point, he goes off to um, Rochefort, um, hoping to get a, a ship uh, initially to America, which is exactly what his brother Joseph does. Um, but he's unable to do that. He ends up surrendering to Captain Sir Frederick Maitland, who's in command of a ship called the Bellerophon, which is a, a Trafalgar veteran. And he does that, and he's taken off to, uh, um, uh, I think it's off uh, Portsmouth eventually. Uh, and then he's there for a, a few days, and it becomes very uncomfortable for the government. Because one shouldn't forget, for a lot of people in, in the UK, particularly in the liberal wing of politics, well, uh, um, Napoleon was, uh, was a good one. You know, they supported uh, the radical um, elements of the French Revolution. And also, he was an object of curiosity. So he became a, um, uh, the object of tours. People would get into boats and row around the boat and find out. And every now and then, Napoleon would come up and sort of doff his hats to the crowd. <laughs> and then some loony vicar would paddle around trying to pin habeas corpus onto the tip. Now, with the thought of Napoleon uh, undergoing a trial in the... UK. It was more than the government could possibly stomach. So they rapidly had him onto the HMS Northumberland and sent him off to um, St Helena. Excellent. We've got a few points to go through to wrap it up. One thing we like to discuss is key moments, hot points, I mean, many of which we'll have, we'll have covered. But, you know, it is a big and complex battle. So perhaps you could just highlight one or two of those moments which you think are the moments in the battle. Well, you're right. It was a big and complex battle. And the factor of the matter is there, there are a number of key moments. But one shouldn't forget, the battle went down to the war. All three sides, if you take the view that uh, the Prussians were fighting a separate battle against Napoleon, all three sides were looking for a conclusion right up to 7.30, 8 o'clock in, uh, in the evening. Um, so those two key moments of those final stages are amongst the key moments. That's the defeat of the Imperial Guard and the breakthrough of the Prussians Zeton on the eastern end of Wellington's line and, of course, uh, Bulow's corps supervised by um, uh, Blücher at, at Planche Noire. Earlier in the day, I think the moment that really upsets the French battle plan is the failure of that opening massive 
attack. Um, Napoleon was staking everything on an all-out blow, smashing through the centre of Wellington's line, seizing the crossroads at Mont Saint-Jean, crushing up against the Bois de Soigny. And when it failed, um, it put the whole of his attack plan um, off, off kilter and off balance at the same time as he's getting information that, uh, that the troops appearing to the, from the south east are not French, it's not Grouchy, but the, but, the, but the Prussians. If you ask Wellington himself, he made his position perfectly clear. Um, he always said that it was the closing of the gates uh, during the defence of Hougoumont by um, uh, Major James MacDonald and some, some other guardsmen who kept the French out and thereby enabled Hougoumont to survive as a, as a defended unit was absolutely critical to the saving of the saving of the day. And, and apparently all the French who got inside were, were bayoneted except for the drummer boy? Except for a little drummer boy who was sent to sit in a cellar of the farmhouse um, where he remained for the rest of the battle and I've no idea what happened to him afterwards. Uh, hopefully he had a, a grand career on the lecture tours. Hope he had a very grand career on the lecture tours. Uh, any, any other key moments, hot points that we haven't already discussed or we have that you'd like to? Yes, I think there are um, a, 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 a couple of key moments. Um, there's no doubt that when we're talking about the, um, the repulse of the, of, of the guard, um, it's not so much a key moment, but Wellington's management of his reserves and the deployment of the troops on the spot um, under his own authorities is absolutely key in breaking up that attack. Um, because we've seen how um, various elements of the infantry on the on, on the ridge there, some of them are guards, some of them are Brunswickers, some of them are Netherlanders, play their role in uh, halting those columns, uh, pushing them down the hill, and it's the critical moment of Sir John Colborne placing the 52nd Regiment foot uh, parallel to the line of that last uh, of that last column of the guard, uh, which enables the whole of that attack to um, be defeated, and it and it dissolves. And of course, once it does go, it's a, it's a very obvious uh, defeat, not just to the British Army, but to the but to the French as uh, French as well. John Keegan's book, The Face of Battle, is uh, a great favourite of mine and um, he discusses three battles, one of which is Waterloo. And quite a lot of what he talks about is the sort of rock, scissors, paper style of, of um, activity on the battlefield. What I mean by that is artillery versus infantry or cavalry versus cavalry or infantry versus cavalry. Um, and I think he lists, lists about seven or eight different types of, of encounter, which really uh, seem to be contained within the modern idea of uh, combined operations. Um, do, do you want to talk about any of those? Um, yeah, well, he was absolutely, um, absolutely right. The failure of the French to defeat uh, Wellington's army was in part um, a series of schoolboy tactical errors it's the failure to get the rock paper scissors thing right and it goes back to what we were talking about um a little bit earlier if you're an attacker and you want to bring an overwhelming uh, battlefield advantage against your enemy you can do it in a number of ways if you threaten your enemy with uh, cavalry he will be forced to form a square 
because that is the conventional and indeed the proven tactic against, uh, against cavalry. Well, the square is vulnerable to artillery because it's a mass and is also vulnerable to uh, an attack by opposing infantry if they can be done in such a way that they can extend a line that delivers greater firepower on those squares because a square, by forming a square outer line, means that the front face of it, which is approaching the attackers, is only 25% of its own of its own firepower. And that's exactly what um, Napoleon meant earlier in the day when he says, I will... Um, use my cavalry to make them show themselves, and then I will go at them with my artillery, and then I will finish them off with my guard. That wasn't just a piece of um, morale-boosting uh, rhetoric. It was a tactical. Uh, it was a tactical statement, and it never happened. So let's look at the first great attack that was beaten off. We saw we saw those um, four divisions attacking uh, in unusually large size. You know, seventeen and a half thousand men in four columns. Is uh, it, it is something that no British soldier had ever seen seen before, and had hardly ever been used by by the French. The problem is it crowded out the battlefield. So Dubois' um, twelve hundred uh, uh, cuirassiers, who are attacking on the left flank, uh, that's say the west flank, just the other side of uh, La Haye Saint, which were meant to be providing the cavalry support, and in essence been pushed off to one side of the the battlefield. The only way in which they could make a good contribution would be for themselves to break through the line and then to wheel to the east so that it can combine with the infantry attack. Um, so that was an element of um, infantry and cavalry failing to combine in the right way. And anyway, Dubois cuirassiers weren't properly supported, so they were uh, completely um, broken up by the charge of the, of the household brigade. Another example... Um, which you mentioned is during the French cavalry attacks. You know they weren't properly supported by uh, horse artillery. They weren't properly supported by infantry. Uh, they were, however, quite well supported by cannon. So, for example, had infantry been available in numbers at the very time that the cavalry forced Wellington's um, <clears throat> army to form into squares, they might have made more of it. They would still have been the counter-attacking cavalry, but it's another example of the um, uh, of the classical tactical manoeuvres not not happening. And um, it's almost like that they knew what to do, but in in the heat of battle they sort of forgot. I mean, they didn't even spike the guns. I think that's exactly exactly right. Mm-hmm. And um, Ney, uh, who was uh, as we've discussed, the soldier soldier was injecting uh, what he thought was momentum and he was delivering Holocaust attacks, there's no, no doubt about it, but he wasn't providing the tactical finesse which would have uh, cracked through the line. And and what about the, the way the commanders, Napoleon and Wellington, were on the battlefield? Again, we've talked quite a lot about it, but you know that Wellington's incredibly mobile uh, his movements around the battlefield. Apparently, his horse kicked him at the end of the day. It's, it's, I don't know. If that's true well, Kevin, no, it uh, didn't kick him. But uh, when he got back to his um, inn at Waterloo, he gave Copenhagen an appreciative pat on the rump, whereupon it kicked out with both feet, and <laughs> fortunately missed him. Um, yes, he was constantly moving around uh, around the battlefield, which meant he was orchestrating what was uh, what was happening down to very often minute levels, like at that moment when he saw off part of the old guard attack. And, and I mean, not just 
um, lending his great experience. But I mean, if you're a young soldier in a square or line or whatever, and you see the boss come over and, and take charge, that must give a huge boost. Indeed. And of course, there's a fam- famous moment when the Ney had brought up those two cannon and started hosing the centre of the line with fire. Some of the Brunswickers there uh, were moving backwards uh, quite naturally to get out of, out of range of the shot. Um, and it's uh, Wellington personally who rallies them. And, uh, you know, he was a figure of authority and recognised as such. And he was able personally to do the, you know, the personal magnetism it takes in order to rally um, worried troops. One of the things that John Keegan uh, talked about in his book, The Face of Battle, but also seems to have set the the way that historians quite often talk about battles and wars today is is the personal story rather than just talking about generals and strategy. Um, individuals in action. Are there any individuals that are either on the French, Prussian or um, on the Wellington side um, that you'd like to mention uh, who did particular interesting things? I'm sure there are hundreds. And the problem is it's a bit like the... I don't know, a bit like the First World War. So for every person who got a military medal or Victoria Cross, there were hundreds who did uh, equally brave, uh, brave things. We just, we just don't know who they are. I mean, some of the famous ones, of course, is Sergeant Ewart's taking of the 45th Regiment's uh, uh, eagle during the uh, charge of the uh, Scots Greys, performing uh, clinically a form of sword drill, which was known as the Seven Cuts, which had been devised by Major General Sir John Lamarche and had been killed at the Battle of uh, Salamanca. And he describes how he's wielding his, uh, his sword. And at the moment he took the eagle, he says he was attacked by an infantryman who uh, charged him with a, with a bayonet. And he says very coolly how he parried the bayonet and then cut him up through the chin, which went through his teeth. So here you see somebody who's not only uh, being brave but is also operating uh, a form of uh, uh, discipline. So when you look Very much in command of what he's doing. But knowing what he has to do and is therefore confident in what he's he's doing. So it's not just human character and morale. If you have well-disciplined troops, um, they can hold it with high morale. They can hold it better than, uh, than, than otherwise. Who was the other soldier who captured the eagle? What was his name? Well, there was a controversy over that one. There was a Captain Kennedy Clark who claimed he took the eagle. And there was a Corporal um, Norman Stiles who claimed he took the eagle. And what happened was there was a, a joint attack on the officer who was actually on horseback at this stage. And Kennedy Clark says uh, he leant across his horse and he put the point or ran the point of his sword through the French officer's uh, side, as he put it, into the kidneys, whereupon the officer fell sideways, as did the eagle, just at the time that uh, Corporal Styles was there, and the eagle fell across Corporal Styles's horse. And uh, Kenny Glart said he, well, he grabbed the, the, the flag that was attached to it, the tricolour, and gave Styles orders to take this thing off the, um, off the battlefield, which he did. And for years afterwards, this controversy went on as to who took that eagle. Were they both of the same regiment? Yeah. Uh, well, at least that saved an even more painful argument. Yeah, and uh, Kennedy Clark ends up a lieutenant general, so... There you go. Uh, any others? Well, yes, I think um, mostly when one 
singles out somebody. It's it's a uh, it's a motif or symbolism for what was happening in an area generally. So Macdonald and his companions who closed the gates at Hougoumont, uh, I think, were particularly brave. Thirty Frenchmen had got in, and Macdonald was at the far end of the uh, of the courtyard, uh, supervising the the frontal uh, frontal attacks, and he immediately grabs about five or six infantrymen around uh, about him. And he says, you know, ignore the French, just go straight for the gates. So these people are still in there while they are closing closing the gates. And they manage to do it. Um, and then they turn around and, and massacre those soldiers that actually and, got in. And there was an enormous French officer, wasn't there, with a sort of axe? Well, he was a sergeant. He was a pioneer. Oh. And he was called, appropriately, his name was Le Gros. His nickname was L'Enfonceur. And he was a man who bashed his way through the narrow bit of the gates as they were closing and I imagine he got bayoneted. He got bayoneted. Fantastic. Thank you so much. I mean, what it was a terrible <laughs> slaughter. Napoleon ended up having to retreat and was captured. Really, my question was, at the beginning, was it a battle or was it the battle, the culmination? Was Napoleon fizzling out or did this stop him in his tracks before he had a chance to gain true momentum and never be shifted from France or Europe. It's definitely the last in a series of battles that uh, saw Napoleon fizzling out, and it starts in 1812 with his defeat by the Russians in, in, in Russia. And then there's another hammer blow, uh, Leipzig, whereas, um, and then, of course, there's invasion of France in 1814. What he's affected in 1815 is pretty much a military military coup. He had to win Waterloo if he had any chance of garnering any political support domestically. Um, but it is really difficult to see that um, he would have been in a position to defeat the other allies. What had happened was all his enemies were together in one place at the same time in Vienna, which meant they could very rapidly take a decision to mobilise. And they effectively mobilised... Um, 700,000 troops. And so the, the, the military weight um, facing him was absolutely enormous. I think there would have been a short-term repercussion, but the question you have to ask yourself is, if he'd won Waterloo, to what degree would he have won? Um, would he have completely routed Blucher and Wellington, in which case it would have been a, a, a cataclysmic victory? Or what would have happened? He'd simply won a tactical victory. He'd say pushed Wellington off the battlefield and held the Prussians up. In which case, Wellington and the Prussians would have had a chance to fight again together another day. And so many of the battles in the late Napoleonic period were becoming big battles over one or two, and sometimes, sometimes three three days. It's not always a very good idea to ask what would have happened, you know, if. There'd been outright victory, but it's very difficult to see how he could have won <coughs> uh, militarily. Um, and not only that, I think his opponents were absolutely determined. I mean, they just couldn't live with this guy. And one reason for that is, of course, in his true way, when Napoleon returns in 1815, he behaves duplicitly on the international stage. So he immediately says, oh, I've come in peace and I don't want war, just let me rule France. Well, that's not 
what's going on behind the scenes. He immediately starts trying to uh, create uh, an international alliance around himself um, again, and he looks as though he's up to the uh, up to the same old tricks. So the determination is there, as well as the as well as the numbers. So to go back to your question, yeah, it nothing was more final than Napoleon's defeat at. Uh, Waterloo, it really decided something. You know, he abdicated just a few days, uh, a few days later. It was a catastrophic military and political defeat from which he could not uh, recover. But he was set up by the uh, decline in the Napoleon system that had been started by his invasion of Russia in in, uh, in 1812. Hugh Macdonald Buchanan, thank you very much. You're very welcome. The Battle of Waterloo ended the Napoleonic period of war and ushered in almost 100 years of the Pax Britannica. So it goes. You've been listening to our mini-series on battles. Details of Hugh Macdonald Buchanan's tours and talks are given in the show notes. His website is hmbtourguide.co.uk Please pass on this podcast to a friend to help spread the word you can contact me at talk at bloodyviolenthistory.com thank you and good luck